Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morrison and Forrester, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Welcome to Mo Forecast, a podcast series where experts from Morrison and Forrester make predictions about enforcement and policy trends in the upcoming Biden administration. Today, we'll be discussing the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. I'm your host, James Kukios, and today I'm joined by my partner and longtime colleague, Chuck DeRoss. Chuck and I both started our DOJ careers at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Miami before moving to Maine Justice in D.C. to work on FCPA cases. Chuck was head of the DOJ FCPA unit for four years, and I was an assistant chief in the unit and later senior deputy chief of the fraud section. Together, Chuck and I head MOFO's FCPA and Global Anti-Corruption Practice Group. So Chuck, before we get into our predictions for the future, let's set the stage for the current context. What were the FCPA enforcement priorities and trends during the Trump administration? Well, thanks, James, and thanks for having me. I think perhaps most importantly, FCPA enforcement didn't end uh, in the Trump administration. Uh, What people may recall uh, is that prior to becoming uh, president, uh, then uh, citizen Trump uh, called the FCPA essentially a horrible law uh, that was uh, putting sort of U.S. companies at a disadvantage in, in sort of the global um, sort of economy. And that led many observers, candidly, to predict that FCPA enforcement would decrease or even stop under a Trump administration. And I remember actually sort of watching a CNBC uh, newscast uh, where he called into the show, you know, and I, I think at that time I was actually still at DOJ and was complaining about the law. So I certainly shared uh, some of those uh, views uh, that were you know, people were at least concerned about. But the truth is that what we knew at the time and has borne out to be true is that there were, you know, there were some reasons why that wasn't going to happen. And so, look, we saw that there were several uh, systemic trends uh, that we believed would cause FCPA enforcement uh, to continue uh, even during the Trump administration. First, there's bipartisan support. Uh, the ramp up in FCPA enforcement actually began under the George W. Bush administration and continued through the Obama administration. Many people thought it was sort of an Obama era uh, you know, uptick, and, and that's actually not true historically. Uh, secondly, there were increased resources. By the end of the Obama administration, there were approximately 30 full-time prosecutors in DOJ's FCPA unit uh, and approximately the same amount of uh, enforcement attorneys in the FCPA unit at the SEC. And there was even uh, the creation of new FCPA squads uh, at the FBI. So all of these people are career employees, and they are not political appointees. They're, they're public servants, and they're, they're career folks. And so you know, those people are not going to change uh, with one administration, whether that's from the Bush administration, the Obama administration, or Obama to Trump, or now Trump to Biden. And so these career folks were going to continue to move forward. And then third was the internationalization of the anti-corruption enforcement uh, sort of uh, ecosystem. By the end of the Obama administration, uh, the U.S. was no longer going it alone. Uh, it used to be the U.S. would resolve cases on a unilateral uh, basis. But what you started to see before the end of the Obama administration was international enforcement and cooperation among counterparts across jurisdictions. And really, that was enhancing DOJ and SEC's ability to bring all those kinds of cases. Uh, and so combined, you know, we were pretty confident, and it turned out to be the case um, that FCPA enforcement was going to continue under the Trump administration, even if the president himself was not a fan. No, absolutely. 
That doesn't mean, of course, that FCPA enforcement stayed exactly the same. It never does, whether it's within administration or between administrations, you know, FCPA enforcement is evolving. So if we step back and maybe look at some of the trends over the last four years, I think it is fair to say that the types of cases that DOJ brought changed slightly during the Trump administration. Again, not really because of Trump or the leaders at DOJ, but more because the natural evolution of FCPA cases. So what do I mean by that? First, there was an increase in individual prosecutions over the last four years. That was not so much a change in focus. DOJ had long been focused on trying to increase the number of individual prosecutions. In fact, way back when, when Chuck and I were still in the FCPA unit, he and I both went to trial against individuals in FCPA cases. But those cases do take a long time to bring. And so this trend of increased individual prosecutions was the culmination of many years of efforts to increase the number of individuals prosecuted for FCPA and related violations. And that really came together during the last four years. Second, there was probably a slight decrease in the overall number of corporate cases brought by DOJ, potentially in part because so many resources were devoted to individuals. But those cases were of extremely high value. Even if the number of cases may have been slightly lower, the value of those cases were very high. In fact, in 2019 and 2020, those two years set successive records for the total amount of money recovered by DOJ and SEC as a result of corporate FCPA cases, topping $2.5 billion in both years. So really, we saw a huge increase in individual prosecutions and and an increase in large-scale FCPA corporate resolutions. I think that's absolutely right, James. Uh, and and I, I guess I would add to that that there there has been sort of a, a notable trend on the SEC side uh, in which the SEC has increased uh, its use of the FCPA's accounting provisions uh, in its enforcement actions. Now, most people think when they think about the FCPA, they think about foreign bribery. Uh, But a lot of people don't realize that one of the most used provisions of the FCPA is actually the accounting provisions, not the anti-bribery provisions. Those accounting provisions apply to publicly traded companies, and they are enforced not just by DOJ, but also SEC. And the SEC has used those provisions to go after publicly traded companies in a wide variety of cases, and in some ways in an increasing way versus the anti-bribery provisions. Those two provisions uh, within the uh, the accounting provisions are one that publicly traded companies uh, in the United States, uh, or I should say, companies that trade on uh, exchanges in the U.S., are required to have accurate books and records. They are also required to have effective internal accounting controls uh, that that uh, permit management to control uh, the the use of money in transactions and have oversight into how money is spent. Historically, the SEC brings these types of uh, charges in all of its uh, FCPA enforcement actions, but definitely we saw, uh, and I don't think it was sort of related to the Trump administration per se, but we definitely saw that uh, there was an increase in what I would call sort of accounting provision only cases and circumstances in which candidly, there would only be an SEC accounting provisions case brought and no related parallel DOJ enforcement action. One trend that I think we saw that may have been somewhat related to the Trump appointees was DOJ's increasing efforts to increase transparency in its corporate enforcement decisions, including in FCPA cases. Now, Chuck, you and I, that was a big goal that we had was to try to explain better to the public 
why we were bringing cases, why resolutions looked the way they did. But it really did seem that Brian Benchkowski, who was the assistant attorney general for the criminal division for most of the Trump administration, really brought that to another level. He really seemed to want to put out a lot of guidance and a lot of transparency in the criminal division's charging decisions. So for example, under AAG Benchkowski's leadership, the criminal division put out an evaluation of corporate enforcement programs. They put out monitor selection memo, inability to pay guidance. And then most notably, although this was at the the DAG level uh, in the FCPA space, was the FCPA corporate enforcement policy. That policy tweaked and made permanent the FCPA pilot program, which the fraud section had actually implemented at the end of the Obama administration. Its purpose is to encourage companies to self-report FCPA violations, cooperate with DOJ FCPA investigations, and implement remedial measures by being more transparent in the benefits that a company will receive by taking those steps. So again, a continuation of a trend that we saw from before, but that one really the efforts to increase transparency in FCPA charging decisions really, I do think, ramped up under the Trump administration. So having surveyed the last four years of FCPA enforcement, Chuck, what are your predictions about FCPA enforcement priorities and trends under the new administration? Well, I think first and and foremost, uh, I think what people can expect is largely the same, which is uh, I think there's going to continue to be robust FCPA enforcement going strong uh, uh, well into and through the the Biden administration. As we said before, these are career professionals, whether that's at DOJ or uh, SEC or the different um, law enforcement agencies like FBI uh, that work routinely uh, with, uh, with DOJ and investigating these kinds of cases. And frankly, you know, the partnership that DOJ and SEC have with their counterparts around the world, uh, I think, is only increasing, and I think it's exponential. And you see that in a number of the enforcement cases that have been brought uh, just in the past year, uh, in which, for example, whether it's Goldman Sachs or uh, Airbus or some of these other cases, they involve multiple jurisdictions. And as a result of that, you know, I think you're going to see more enforcement going forward, and I don't think it's going to let up. The one thing I would say that uh, you might be seeing in 2021 in into 2022 is potentially a slowdown or, or delay in some enforcement. Right now in 2020, you've seen a lot of enforcement even during the pandemic, but I think those cases were in a different posture. People were discussing resolutions by then. It wasn't so much a factual investigation. And so I think you know, the ability to negotiate those matters over the phone or video conferences or the like, I think was there. But I think there's just got to be a challenge for you know any of these agencies trying to investigate cases where they can't uh, meet with people you know in person to conduct interviews uh, to review the evidence, for example, with a foreign counterpart. There are just going to be certain things that inhibit um, the best efforts that DOJ and SEC and the law enforcement agencies can bring. And while I don't think you're going to see that today, I do think that you could actually see that play itself out over time. And so I wouldn't be surprised if there were a, sort of a, a gap or a delay, if you will, in 2021 or 2022. 
I don't think it's necessarily going to be that visible ultimately because I do think DOJ and SEC will play catch up um, once they can uh, sort of in 2021 start to work uh, more uh, as they did pre-pandemic. But there is certainly, I think, that possibility from my perspective. And and look, I think you know the traditional sort of conventional wisdom is that you know that uh, the, a Democratic administration may be more favorable to uh, greater degrees of enforcement, particularly against corporate America. Again, these are career professionals. I don't know that there will be uh, much of an impact, but there could be uh, at least some. Definitely agree with that. I think from a legal perspective, it'll be interesting to see whether DOJ continues to aggressively pursue cases based on an agency theory. And for a little bit of context, in the Hoskins case from a couple of years ago, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals held that DOJ could not charge certain foreign defendants with conspiring to violate the FCPA unless it could prove that the defendant was an agent of an issuer or a domestic concern. Around the same time, and and maybe because they had to start thinking about the agency issue more because of this Hoskins decision, DOJ appears to have started applying the agency theory in the corporate context as well, uh, bringing cases against parent companies on the theory that a foreign subsidiary that paid bribes in a foreign country was acting as an agent of the parent. It was a little bit more expansive and aggressive than I think we had seen in the past. And you know, our thinking was maybe this had something to do with Hoskins because they had to think about um, agency more. But the problem with that is that the term agent is not defined in the FCPA. So it's not entirely clear when an individual or a corporate subsidiary can be considered an agent of an issuer or a domestic concern. In that original Hoskins case, the Second Circuit declined to define the term agent And that left DOJ and the defendant to duke it out in the district court. They did. The defendant was convicted. The district court judge said that DOJ had actually failed to prove agency. And now the issue is back before the Second Circuit again on what it means to be an agent. Many uh, amicus briefs have been filed on that issue. There's an active litigation going on right now. And I think how that issue is resolved ultimately by the Second Circuit could have a big impact on DOJ charging theories in both the corporate and individual context going forward, but particularly for our clients in the corporate context, because this whole issue of when a subsidiary is an agent of a parent company is a really thorny and difficult issue that could potentially create a lot more liability for parent companies than I think uh, most of us originally expected would be the case. Oh, well, I agree with that. I, I think there's another uh, component that I would be thinking about here uh, going forward. And, and again, I think it's less related to you know particular administration so much as I think it's just the development uh, in this space. And by that, I mean, with the accounting provisions we were talking about earlier, the SEC has definitely been uh, using them, uh, I think, in an increasing way and in certain circumstances in places where uh, DOJ is taking a pass. There's always been a gap between DOJ and SEC on that. There are different standards of proof, uh, different agencies with different mandates. So there are reasons for that. But I do think that uh, the SEC's use of the accounting uh, uh, provisions is getting greater scrutiny. And I think that, uh, and that might start to continue to play itself out. There, oftentimes, uh, you know, it's been referred to as inner, uh, one of the provisions is internal controls, but it's really internal accounting controls. And we see that in the revision, the second edition of the SCP resource guide put out over the summer. 
in in uh, in at the very beginning of July 2020, and uh, there was an effort to go back through that original guide in 2012 and actually add the word accounting where it was otherwise saying internal controls and making sure it said internal accounting controls. In addition to that, we just saw in November, so just a few weeks ago, uh, two commissioners uh, actually issue a public statement in dissent of a, a resolution that I'll point out was not a bribery case, but it did involve the application of the accounting provisions, which are not required, by the way, to be related to bribery. And in that uh, statement, uh, both of these commissioners indicated that they believed that the commission's um, findings in that case had an unduly broad view uh, of the internal accounting uh, provisions, and then goes on at some length to talk about the fact that you know, in these cases with internal accounting controls charges, there's no Sienta requirement, uh, and that even good faith corporate behavior may be scrutinized with 2020 hindsight. And then as others have recognized, there are no specific standards uh, in the statute by which to evaluate the sufficiency of controls, making it a highly subjective process in which knowledgeable individuals can arrive at totally different conclusions. I think this kind of focus may uh, at some point start to drive the SEC to think at least a little bit differently about how it applies the internal accounting controls in FCPA cases, uh, because I, I do think many people, either in the defense bar, within companies, or at least two of these commissioners, uh, think that it's often a sort of a, a standard of perfection applied uh, with 2020 hindsight uh, that even good companies may fail. And whether that was truly the, the intention of Congress uh, when the law was first passed. That'll definitely be interesting to see what happens there. You know, one question we often get asked is what industry or which country will DOJ and SEC target next for increased FCPA enforcement? And I'm sure that uh, many people will be asking the same questions about whether the Biden administration will have any priorities in that regard as well. But the truth of the matter is that DOJ and SEC, with this, a few exceptions where the SEC targeted a couple of industries just a few times over the years, the pharma industry or the financial industry. Generally speaking, DOJ and SEC don't target industries or countries. They're much more opportunistic. You know, self-reports, media articles, other kind of whistleblowers. You know, it's kind of more what presents itself to them than actually proactively going out and looking for these kind of cases. But that said, we have seen an organic increase over the years in enforcement actions involving certain countries. And particularly, I'd say China and some countries in South America that have state-owned oil companies. It's interesting, if you went back probably at the beginning of the Obama administration, Nigeria was, was probably the number one country that you would say if there was one country being you know, focused on in terms of FCPA enforcement. But over the last several years, China has just shot to the top. So I think um, that trend is going to continue. As everyone knows, China's a big market. It's a high-risk market because of all the state-owned enterprises and historic corruption risk. So China is going to continue to be just organically a big focus of FCP enforcement. It'll be interesting to see what happens with the South American countries. You know, Brazil is a big, obviously, shot to the forefront over the last couple of years because of Operation Lava Jato or Operation Car Wash, which was really a Brazil-led investigation into alleged corruption at their state-owned oil company, Petrobras. That generated huge corporate and individual prosecutions around the world, many in the US, uh, Switzerland, the Netherlands, uh, Singapore, and Brazil, of course. 
that seems to be winding down a little bit. It'll be interesting to see if Brazil remains as prominent as it has in the past, given that. The other big country um, that shot to the front is Venezuela. And that is primarily because of a bunch of individual cases involving the state-owned um, oil industry there, PDVSA. So it'll be interesting to see if those continue, but I'm sure that there will be, Chuck, as there always is, another country that kind of leaps to the forefront that maybe we weren't expecting that becomes the the big player in, from that regard. What do you think about monitors, Chuck? Is that you just finished up uh, your own monitorship. Do you think there are going to be an increase in monitorships during a Biden administration? You know, it's interesting. It's a sort of a perennial question that people ask, which is sort of, you know, what's the trend in monitorships? Uh, are they going up? Are they going down? Are they remaining steady? And the truth is that uh, that you know, our impression, both from our time, uh, uh, if I can speak for you, also James at DOJ. And since leaving the government, is, is that it really it's a case by case analysis, and you have to look at the specific facts of a case to assess whether or not a monitor is appropriate. That's certainly what the guidance that both DOJ and, and SEC follow uh, is that it's a, a, a fact intensive uh, inquiry that's specific to the case at hand. And I think you need to look no further than just the last twelve months to see that. You see, you know, uh, a couple of cases like Airbus and Goldman Sachs that are sort of you know, billion dollar plus cases. So very substantial cases that one would have uh, assumed maybe five or 10 years ago would absolutely have a monitor uh, required as part of any kind of a resolution. And that's not the case. There was no monitor uh, in, in those instances. And then if you look at, for example, uh, last December, uh, a year ago, uh, the Erickson case, which was a, a you know more than a billion dollar resolution, and it did have a monitor. So you, you ask yourself, well, what's the distinction between, for example, those three cases? How do two come out with no monitor and one comes out with one? And is it the result of some policy change? Is it a result of sort of the Trump administration uh, not liking monitors? And I would say it has nothing to do with uh, with that. Um, I think if you look at the individual resolutions, what you see is the Goldman Sachs matter, while very substantial in terms of the penalty, actually involves sort of very narrow conduct of sort of a specific set of individuals as opposed to something that's systemic uh, in the first instance. And the second one, if you look at Airbus, while it actually does have that systemic component to it with multiple countries that are part of this um, resolution where the conduct was occurring, what you see there is that there is uh, a remedial efforts made going back as far as, you know, five plus years ago uh, to, to actually fix that. And that was enough time to test the program such that a monitor wasn't required. And if you compare that to Ericsson, which uh, like Airbus actually had multiple countries as part of that resolution. So there was this systemic component to it. The resolution itself specifically said that because the company had not yet fully implemented and tested its compliance program, uh, the company was going to be required to have a, a corporate compliance monitor. And so, again, I think the, the where you see this going is that companies that are thinking about and getting that remediation going early enough that it can be fully implemented and fully tested by the time that the resolution is coming online, you can potentially avoid that monitor, even in a big case. And if you don't, you might end up with one. So I think it's less about the trend and more about sort of the specific facts and circumstances of a given case. I totally agree. I remember when the uh, Benchkowski monitor memo came out, there were some people who thought that that was an indication that there would be 
some kind of bias against monitors. And I think when we read it, we said, actually, this is really just being more transparent about what the unwritten rules are of what the criminal division was doing in terms of assessing monitors and then trying to guard against scope creep um, when a monitor was in place. So we didn't see that as a bias against monitors at all. And I think what you said makes great sense. So Chuck, now uh, staying on the topic of the future, um, we've talked about some of the trends that we expect to happen during the Biden administration. What should companies do to prepare for enforcement in the upcoming years? Well, you know, what I think is uh, helpful to companies as well as the defense bar that's counseling companies is look at what the government's already telling you, right? Just look at the FCPA resource guide. The second edition just came out. Look at the most recent edition of the evaluation of corporate compliance programs that uh, that was just, um, you know, uh, I think the third edition now has come out uh, in June. Uh, the SEC, obviously, going way back to the Seaboard report, it has a series of different questions. And it becomes clear that w- one of the number one things that uh, the government expects is that companies are assessing their, their, their risk, their respective risk, making an assessment, an informed judgment about what are the risks that the company faces in how it does business, where it does business, who it does business with. And once you make an assessment of that risk profile, you are more capable of tailoring your compliance program to deal with and hopefully mitigate those risks. And that is absolutely what the government's expecting. And and the, the benefit of doing that is actually twofold. One, preventing and detecting the problems in the first instance because you have got a more effective compliance program. And secondly, if there ultimately is a problem, this is one of the key uh, components or criteria that you can then bring forward to the government to say, we're actually a company that cares about getting it right and we did all the right things and you can sort of lay out from soup to nuts. We started with a risk assessment and then we applied it in good faith across our program, making sure that our policies, procedures, training, communications, you know, investigations, platforms, forms, you know, speak up culture, tone at the top, all those kinds of things were done uh, with a, a good faith effort to make sure that the company didn't, in fact, violate the law. I think that's one of the keys to, to be thinking about early on. That's a great point. And I think building on that is uh, the importance of conducting a thorough investigation when there are allegations uh, that there may be an FCPA or anti-corruption problem. As Chuck mentioned, the FCPA resource guide, the evaluation of corporate compliance programs emphasize the importance of having a, a robust internal investigation process. And I think, uh, you know, a couple other things make investigations even more important maybe during the next four years. Um, one is the continued importance of the whistleblower program for the SEC. And they just recently revamped the rules with the idea that they needed to become more efficient and better uh, encourage whistleblowers to come forward and make it more clear that they'll get rewarded for doing so. So there may be an additional tweak of those incentives for whistleblowers to come forward. Also, as Chuck mentioned, you know, there's kind of this um, rule of thumb or conventional wisdom that a democratic administration will be a little more um, favorable to in- enforcement against companies. Again, we said for a lot of reasons that Chuck mentioned already, that may not be the case. FCP enforcement has continued really on a bipartisan basis. But to the extent there is a ramp up of investigations by the government, it's always best for the company to get in there first, get a handle of the situation in case the government ever comes knocking. Uh, And potentially, if it's the right situation, self-report as well. Of course, that's a very difficult decision. We're not saying that's what you should do all the time. Um, But to make sure that you get to be in the position where you can take advantage of the benefits if there is an issue, 
by doing that thorough investigation and then implementing the remediation that Chuck talked about. If you do have an issue, make sure that it doesn't happen again, that you fixed it, that your controls and your processes, procedures are up to snuff. So if there is an issue later on, you can say to the government, we did our best. I think that's exactly right. Look, the, the last thing I'll just uh, touch upon is the you know the, the question that always comes up about self-reporting um, and whether or not ultimately to do that and to get ahead of a potential issue. Uh, DOJ and SEC have been encouraging that now for quite some time. There are certainly policies uh, in place, certainly on the DOJ side, uh, to encourage that. I think it's a challenge for companies and it'll remain that uh, because regardless of what the, the government may put out there as an incentive, uh, there's always uncertainty. Not all prosecutors are created equal. Uh, not all circumstances uh, merit the same uh, same approach for a company. And so I think that'll remain a challenge. One of the things I think is interesting is in the recent OECD phase four report of U.S. enforcement, it actually indicates that uh, with regard to voluntary disclosures to DOJ, uh, they only account for 30 percent of the uh, you know the the ways that cases are opened uh, at DOJ and twenty percent are whistleblowers. So it's an interesting fact that that you know the sort of the impact of Dodd Frank and and other sort of ways of encouraging whistleblowers that you know that impacts the the ultimate decision about whether to make a self report, which is what's the likelihood that if you don't that there's some whistleblower or other vehicle by which the department or the SEC uh, may come knocking on your door anyway. Uh, so certainly something to be thinking about. Well, this is the end of our Mo Forecast episode on FCPA enforcement and policy trends for the upcoming Biden administration. Once again, I'm your host, James Kukios, speaking with Chuck DeRoss. If you liked today's episode, please visit the MoFo website and join us for additional installments of the Mo Forecast series, covering predictions for enforcement and policy trends in other areas of the law. Thanks for joining us. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.